Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. chapter number 27, verse number 27. Uh, Let's stand to our feet as we read the Word of God together. If you're a student of your Bible, you know exactly where we are when we come to this passage. Uh, We are coming to a scene that lays right uh, at the scene of the cross. The Lord Jesus is headed to the cross. He is en route to dying for the sins of the world when we come to this passage. So let's read a few verses together tonight. I still, as I mentioned last week, we still have a little bit a little bit in our Wednesday night series is that we need to finish, but I felt like the Lord would have us to be here and to take a break from the series that we've been in on Wednesday nights. Let's read the Word of God together. Verse 27, the Bible says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And these words grip my heart when I consider in my mind that this is the darling Son of God. This is my Savior. If you're saved, this is your Savior that we're reading about. The Bible said they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and sat up over his head, his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then when there, excuse me, then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias, and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And we'll conclude our reading there. You may have a seat. Let's bow for a word of prayer and we'll get into the message that God would have for us tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before your presence as thankfully and humbly, Lord, as I know how. Lord, I just pray for these next few moments, God, that your will would be done in every way, shape, and fashion. Lord, I did not come tonight to try to impress uh, Lord, except to impress that which your word says upon the hearts of your people. Lord, I'm not impressive. Lord, I can't impress men, and I definitely don't impress you. Father, I pray for the next few moments as I speak to your people about you and this, Lord, this most sacred text and, Lord, this most sacred scene in the Word of God, I pray that you'd help me to do the Word of God justice. I pray that you'd help me to rightly divide the Word of truth and to preach this thought, God, that you would have for us this evening. Father, I pray, dear God, that you'd forgive me of sin, empty me of self, fill me with your spirit, and help me, God, to be used in your hand. Help me, God, to be a blessing. Help me, Lord, to say only those things that you'd have to be said and not anything God that you wouldn't have to be said. Thank you, Lord, for showing me some of these thoughts out of the Word of God. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me to convey them in the way that you would have for them to be conveyed to your people. Lord, I realize that I cannot preach unless you help me. I realize I cannot encourage and strengthen and feed and be a blessing to these people in any way unless you help me. And Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus, God, that you would do just that. Answer the prayer requests that, uh, Lord, we've mentioned and we've prayed for. Lord, continue, Lord, beyond even this moment to deal with the hearts and in the lives of those that we have, uh, Lord, prayed for and we've asked in prayer. Father, especially for those that are lost and need to be saved. Lord, we do pray for those that are sick and, Lord God, those that need healing in their body. But, Lord, I, I pray that uh, in the holiest, Lord, and even those that may not have been mentioned that are in the hearts of your people, Lord, we realize that more important than getting better from sickness is, Lord, having the sickness of sin dealt with, uh, Lord, in the, what, what took place at Calvary, Lord, that it's been paid for and it needs to be received, that, that payment for sin's debt. And, Father, I pray that every lost person on the list and everyone that may be in the hearts uh, and the minds of this congregation, I pray that you'd save them by the power of the Holy Ghost. And Lord, wash them in the blood of the Lord Jesus, convicting them of their sin. And I pray, God, that they would uh, they would submit themselves to the truth of the Word of God. And Lord, they would repent and believe the gospel before it's everlasting too late. Father, we do pray that your will would be done if there's one lost in this congregation. We pray that they'd be born again. We pray all the saints of God would receive help. And 
Lord, the backslidden would receive a call to come back to you. And Lord, we just pray that your will would be done. Bless this time together, Lord, as only you can. And Father, we'll be careful to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for that which is done. In the name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. When we come to this passage of Scripture, there is much that uh, we could talk about. And if we were to take just the subject of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, uh, it would no, we would not be able to deal with it all uh, in one given service. We wouldn't be able to get deal with it all in a week's worth of services, if the truth be told. Here we come to this passage and we realize that when we come to verse number 27, that uh, Jesus is there. He has been arrested and he is being mocked. Uh, he is being uh, derided. He is being uh, made fun of. He is being physically punished. Uh, he is in being. He is having pain inflict upon, inflicted upon him. And here we realize that the Bible here says much that is, uh, says much here about the moments. And this is Matthew's account uh, of him. And we'll notice some things here in just a moment that are particular to Matthew. All of the Gospels record uh, this event in the life of the Lord Jesus that leads to his death. Uh, all of them record him being mocked, him being betrayed, him being mocked, him being punished physically, and him being led to be crucified. And then in some way, shape, or fashion, uh, the events that transpired on the cross of Calvary, uh, the different authors we record different aspects of this story. But they all make sure to tell us that there was a man named Jesus who was the son of God that uh, went to a place called Golgotha, went to Calvary's hill, and he laid down his life there. And the Bible tells us that what, what is taking place in this scene is Jesus Christ not uh, suffering as a criminal, as those that deny the Bible would say. I, I heard, I saw an interview recently uh, where someone was interviewing Ben Shapiro, and, and I don't know your opinion of Ben Shapiro. I think politically there's a lot of good things that could be said about him. Uh, but spiritually Ben Shapiro is in need of salvation. Uh, he is a Jew and he uh, has boldly said that he does not believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. He said in an interview recently that uh, or at least I saw it recently. I didn't check the date on it. Uh, but he said in an interview when they asked him what he thought about Jesus Christ he said that I believe that he was a criminal that was rightfully uh, was rightfully condemned by the Roman government for insurrection and he said that's all that I have to say about Jesus of Nazareth. What a sad place that is that uh, there are people in the world that can read a story like this and read uh, the, the account I would say is a better word the account of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are not moved the way that you and I are. I don't know about you but every time I read this passage, even reading it out loud together just a moment ago, there were several times along the way where I had to pause to, uh, to keep from becoming emotional at what we read here about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you consider where we are here in this passage, one of the things that keeps coming up is uh, the fact, and this, uh, this goes right along and right in hand uh, with, uh, with it being part of Matthew's gospel, it is mentioned over and over again in this 
passage about Jesus being the king of the Jews. Uh, over and over we read about him being a king. Verse 37 says, and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus the king uh, of the Jews. And uh, they mentioned if he be the king of the Jews. And th this uh, type of um, this type of language uh, appears. Verse 42, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. There is much language about Jesus being the king of God, being the king of the Jews, the king of Israel here. And that fits right in, uh, right in hand with this being the gospel of Matthew. Because if you're a student of your Bible, you'll realize that while most of the gospel accounts, there are passages that are repeated, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they are similar together, John being the most unique of the four gospels. What we find is, though, is that uh, many of them do repeat the same accounts of the life of Jesus, but they do so from their own particular perspective. When you consider what you read in the gospel of Matthew, you will find that Jesus is presented as the, uh, the king of the Jews. He is presented in the realm of his Jewishness. He is uh, being a member of the Jewish family in particular as the king of the Jews. When you consider how Jesus is presented in the gospel of Mark, you will find that you see Jesus serving in uh, the gospel of Mark more than any other gospel, even though the gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four gospels in terms of chapters. You'll find out that the majority of those 16 chapters in the gospel of Mark present Jesus as a servant, uh, one that came to serve uh, those in this world. We see a lot of that in the gospel of Mark. When you look at the gospel of Luke, you find that Jesus is portrayed as the son of man. It is the lengthiest and most detailed of the four gospel accounts. If you want to understand uh, uh, how the gospels are to be laid out in order, you go to Luke. He is the most detailed, having been a physician and a very brilliant man. When you come to Luke, you find that he is presented in the realm of his humanity. And he is linked back in the genealogy in Luke chapter number one to his uh, human origins. Amen. And we see him not just as the king of the Jews and as the servant. Amen. But we see him as the son of man. And then in the gospel of John, we see him depicted uh, by and large to the vantage point and the perspective of being the son of God. If you want to see Jesus in his divinity on every page of a gospel account, go to the gospel of John and you will see him in his humanity or in his deity rather as God. It's highlighted on every page in that gospel. When we come here and it's a Matthew's account as I said, we find him as he, in his relation to the Jewish people. Jesus and the Jews are mentioned over and over here even in these verses in which we read. And as I began to think about what these verses say about Jesus being the king of the Jews, I could not help but get, I could not help but become overwhelmed with the irony that we see here in these verses. And so for the next few moments tonight, I want to preach on this simple subject, irony at Calvary. Irony at Calvary. When we come to this passage, let me present this to you tonight as we consider irony at Calvary. I want to say this tonight that I believe we see some irony in the Lord's position. Let me say this. Irony means to express meaning using words that would normally 
be used to express the opposite. In other words, when you are possibly sitting outside and maybe you might on a cold day be roasting some marshmallows and you'd be looking at a fire and you'd say, man, this fire sure is cool. That's irony. Because it's hot. It's not cool. Now we use that in a slang term, but you understand what I mean. I've heard, I've heard brother, I've heard brother Lewis mention this in stories before. This is irony. When you meet a large man and you call him for his nickname, Tiny. That's irony. Amen. I believe we've discussed some tinies before. Amen. It is a form of sarcasm that is used for emphasis. And here as we consider this scene of the cross, I believe we see some things that are very ironic. And let me just give you them and hopefully you'll understand more what I mean in just a moment. We see the irony in Christ's position. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Look with me at verse, look with me at verse number 27. Here we find in verse 27, the Bible said, and the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. Now notice this in verse 28. And they stripped him. In other words, they forcefully removed from him the clothing that he was wearing when he entered into that hall. Notice these next few words, and put on him a scarlet robe. There was no reason why to have this meeting in the common hall that Jesus had to be stripped. There was no reason why he needed to have a change of wardrobe or a change of attire to have this meeting. The reason why they removed his clothes and they stripped him of his garments is so that they could mock him for being the king of the Jews. You see, in Jesus' ministry, it was, a, it was commonly stated that he was the king of the Jews. He made no, um, no hesitation to let people know that he was a king. We'll see more of that here in just a moment. The Pharisees were obsessed with this idea and they were enraged by the fact that Jesus claimed to be a king, especially the king of the Jewish people. Uh, the Romans were infuriated by this and they were all, they all also felt great danger in the sense of those that were underneath their province and underneath uh, their empire saying that Jesus of Nazareth is a king because they felt like in Rome that that was a threat to Caesar. They would say there is no king but Caesar. And I'm telling you tonight as we look into these verses, those of the Roman Empire could not have been any more wrong if they wanted to be. Amen. They all only reason why Caesar was allowed to be a ruler and allowed to be a king is because this king who was not just the king of the Jews but he was the king of all, amen, he allowed Caesar to have a realm of human authority. That's the only reason there ever was a Caesar. By the way that's the only reason why Joe Biden is the president of the United States is not because he is worthy of authority but 
because there's a God that the Bible says is the King of kings and the Lord of lords that has chosen to allow him to, uh, for a few years to uh, be able to uh, be able to have a, a masquerade, if you will, of a small realm of human authority. Amen. It is God that has allowed that. Here, these individuals, they come before Jesus Christ. They strip him of his clothes. Why? So that they could put a robe on him, and not just any robe, a scarlet robe. Scarlet was a color for royalty. Robe, a robe like this is what a king would wear and they stripped him of his clothes needlessly so they could put this robe on him to mock him as a king. Verse 29 says, and when they had plaited a crown of thorns. You know, it's very common, commonly understood that royalty in this day would have wore a crown. Uh, even, in, even in some countries of the world, we still today recognize that uh, those that are part of the royal family wear crowns. They wear the crown jewels. Here uh, they do not give him an actual crown but they put together a crown of thorns to mock him as the king that he had been so known to be. The Bible says they put the crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed in his right hand. Uh, this reed is a branch from a tree that they had, that they had uh, fastened together uh, to make a fake scepter for him because royalty not only do they wear a robe and they have a crown but royalty always has a scepter amen that they will have in their hand it is a sign of their uh, majesty it is a sign of their kingship or of their royal rule so here they are putting these things in the hands of the Lord Jesus to mock him as a king the Bible says it goes on in verse 29 to say and they bowed the knee before him they bowed themselves in his presence saying uh, they, they, the Bible said they mocked him saying hail king of the Jews here we find the irony of his position why because the man that they are mocking as a king is the king that is irony and they are accidentally, it tried, they are mocking him and they are accidentally treating him the way that he should be treated. Now, as they are, they've made the thorns. It should have been a, it should have been a, it should have been a majestic crown. It should have been a real robe. It should have been a real scepter. They, they are doing things that he deserves, but they're doing it in a way to mock him. Can I say this? The Bible here is telling us this, and as they are trying to mock him as a king, they do not know what they are doing. And can I tell you tonight, that shows the sovereignty of our God that even in mockery, amen, he is still showing us through the pages of the word of God, even using his enemies to do it, he is still showing us exactly who he is. And making no mistake about it.
forever throughout all of time. Psalm 12 said, amen, the Bible, the Bible says that the words of the Lord are pure words, purified seven times. The Bible says, amen, that the word of God will stand forever. Amen. It's written with an iron pen. It's not going anywhere. And for the rest of time, as this scene is recorded the way that it unfolded in human history, we would always be pointed to the fact, even in their mockery, that Jesus is the king. Can I tell you, I, I don't know how far we'll get. I'm just, I'm excited about this thought. Amen. I'm, we will, we, just, just go with me real quickly to Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew chapter number 2. <clears throat> Y'all pray for me on Wednesday nights. I've got one more message in two different series that I need to finish. <clears throat> and I'm looking at this and I'm telling you, I'm not going to get done. Y'all pray for me. <clears throat> the Lord changed my, changed my heart on the message this afternoon in my study. <clears throat> Gave me this thought, and I couldn't be more excited about it if I wanted to be. Matthew chapter number 2. One of the very first mentions of Jesus Christ in your Bible mentions him as the king of the Jews. Remember, they are mocking him for being king of the Jews. They are fearful of that title. And the fear of that title was not a new thing 30 years after Jesus' birth. Notice here, the Bible says in Matthew chapter number 2 and verse number 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Isn't it interesting? I just saw this while we were reading. Isn't it interesting that every time Herod here is mentioned who is holding a physical office as a tetrarch in Galilee, as he's holding that office uh, as a king, the Bible calls him a king. He had a realm of authority given to him by the Roman, um, given him by the Roman uh, emperor that allowed him to be a king over his province, amen, being part of the Herodian dynasty. The Bible refers refers to him as a king, but every time it refers to him, he has a little K, Herod the king. But do you see who in the text does not have a little K? Where is he who is born King, capital K, of the Jews? I would say that when the Holy Ghost put these words in our Bible, he is letting us know that all of the principalities and powers of the world in which we live, they may have their, they may have their realm of authority, but there is one king that deserves a capital K, and his name is Jesus, and it doesn't matter whether he's in the womb of his mother, recently born, 33 years of age, or he is today living out an eternal existence. He has always been, and he will forever be the king. Here we find him referred to as the king of the Jews. Amen. Can I say this as well? Look at chapter number 2 again. And verse number 2. 
Not only does this one verse that we find stowed away and what we normally preach around Christmas time, we find him being described as the king of the Jews. But can I tell you in this one little verse we find him as the king of creation? You say, preacher, where do you see that? Look at the verse. Saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. I don't know about you, but it is impossible to possess something that does not belong to you and you're not in control of. I would tell you this evening that this, that I would tell you this evening that this cell phone is my cell phone. But I would not tell you that this microphone is my microphone. I use it every time we come into church, but this is not mine. This was paid for by the church. This belongs to the church. I only use it when I'm here. You don't see me taking this home and it just being mine and I just wear it around because I like to wear it around. <laughs> it's not mine. It stays here. The pulpit stays here. The microphones stay here. Why? Because they don't belong to me. I'm the chief user of them, but they don't belong to me. This cell phone will go home with me because it belongs to me. Do you see there in that verse, the Bible says that there was a star up in the sky, this very supernatural and special star that led the wise men to exactly where they could find the Son of God, and the Bible said it was His star. I don't know if that does for you what it does for me, but it means that He's not only the King of the Jews, but it means that he is the king of creation because if the stars, hallelujah, if the stars belong to him, then amen, he is the king of it all, amen. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of creation. Go with me to Matthew 27 and verse number 11. Matthew 27 and verse number 11. In case there was any doubt about him being the king. By the way, we're about to read something that enraged these folks in the Bible. Matthew 27, verse number 11. Notice what the Bible says here. The Bible said, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Asked him plainly, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. I believe it is in Mark, if I'm not mistaken. One of the other gospel writers say, refers, refers to it this way. Said that Jesus said, thou sayest it. In other words, this phrase, we don't normally talk like this. But what Jesus says is, you nailed it down, Jack. <laughs> Art thou the king of the Jews? He said, you just got it. This is a statement of affirmation. It's not, I've heard this preached that Jesus is trying to shy away from the question, that Jesus is trying to uh, just simply bypass that he was asked a question. We understand from his, inner, that he, from his uh, being interrogated by Herod, if Jesus, even in the midst of his crucifixion, if he was not interested in having a dialogue with someone, uh, he, if you could ask him any question you wanted, and he would, did not feel compelled to answer your questions. You know why? He's God. He doesn't have to answer us 
does anyway. If anybody knew he was God, Jesus knew he was God. He is not obligated to answer uh, to humanity, no matter what position you hold, because as I've already said, he's the one that's allowing you to hold that position anyway. Jesus, when he was interrogated by Herod, did not speak one word to Herod. After all the questions that Herod answered, Jesus did not answer him one time. And I do find it's a very interesting study when we consider that Jesus was willing to speak to Herod, to Pilate. But he wasn't willing to speak to Herod. That's another message for another day, but I'm telling you, there's interesting thoughts there. Jesus here shows us that not only is he the king of the Jews, not only is he the king of creation, but here he reminds us that he is the king most certainly. Jesus said, you got it right when you asked, am I the king of the Jews? Go with me to John chapter number 6. John chapter number 6. I'm helping some of you with your Bible reading. You might have been busy and didn't get too much of it today, so I'm going to help you out a little bit. Amen? <laughs> I don't normally preach topically. Normally we stay in one passage and just go down the line there, but uh, the Lord put this on my heart this afternoon. John chapter number 6. Look at verse number 13. <clears throat> The Bible says this, therefore they, gather, therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over. Y'all know the story here. And above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come in the world. Notice verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived, by the way, that right there is a statement that proves to us that Jesus is divine. If Jesus can interpret thoughts, he's more than just a mere man. For him to perceive what these individuals are thinking and planning, it means that he must be God in the flesh. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, look at this now, to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of creation. He is the king most certainly. But here we find him as a king that was, that was desired. These individuals wanted to set him up as their king because of what they, could, what they saw him do. They recognized in verse, 20, uh, verse 14, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Verse 15 tells us that even though, and I'm telling this shows us the humility of our Savior. This shows us the devotion of our Savior to the plan and the purpose of his Father in heaven. These individuals desired to make him a king, and he departed so that they could not. I don't know about you, but and I'm not interested in the job. But I am telling you before, much before I take too much of the current administration, I'd be glad to, amen, sign up for some, at least some of the decision-making job myself. Amen. <laughs> you, if you Here, they want to make Jesus king, and he was humble enough and devoted enough to the plan of the Father in heaven that he did not accept it when most men would have accepted it readily. You're right. You're right. They desired him. 
as the king. By the way, can I say this? That's the way the whole world should be. If we ever realized, amen, uh, what kind of an effective, uh, what kind of an effective administrator he is, when we realize how well he runs the world, when we realize that his ways are perfect, we realize that he makes no mistakes, we realize that when he leads, everything turns out exactly the way it ought to be and exactly the way we need it to be, amen, we would be more, we should be more desirous of letting him be in control than we are in the different stages of our life. Amen. He was a king that was desired. Look with me at Luke chapter number 19 this evening. Luke chapter number 19. <clears throat> Luke chapter number 19. <clears throat> Letting you take the time to turn helps me out of my voice as well. So praise the Lord for it. Luke 19 verse 37. Luke 19 verse 37. Can I say this, that he is not only the king of the Jews, the king of creation, the king most certainly, the king that was desired, but he is the king of praise. Luke chapter number 19 and verse number 37, we see these words. The Bible said, and when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed be the king. Notice that, capital K. They had no trouble recognizing who he was. Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said uh, unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Can I tell you that he is so worthy of uh, praise, that he is such a king of praise. He is such the, uh, he is such the one deserving praise. That creation, it, I, by the way, I don't think Jesus is trying to be poetic here. I don't think that he's trying to be metaphorical here. I, I believe that uh, and, and now I don't know if you read the Bible the way I do, but I just believe what it says when it says what it does. If the Bible tells me it's figurative, I'll take it that way. But when the Bible, uh, when the Bible gives us something like this, I believe it exactly the way that it is pinned on the page. Amen. Amen. And I don't believe it that way until somebody convinces me not to. I believe it because that's what God said. And I care about more about what God said than what a commentary said or what doctor so-and-so said or what brother or preacher or pastor or apostle or bishop or amen, whatever you put to there, whatever they say, amen, I'm going with God and I'm trusting what God said in his word, what he wrote down in red and black and white, amen. I'm trusting what the Bible says. Here he says, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And I believe that even in creation, as Jesus began to walk by, as Jesus began to pass these stones, that even, even the inanimate stones would realize the presence of their creator. And if no other creation of God in that moment would have given him praise, the stones would have given him praise. Why? Because he is the king of praise. Amen. 
He's worthy of praise. Here's a question for us, not necessarily part of the message, but I will say this. I will ask us this question. How many times, if this were to be the case, as we walk down the streets of the world and as we, as we go about our daily lives, if this was true in the moments of our life, amen, how many times would a stone have had to replace us for our praise? Probably more than we had ever cared to admit. I'm glad these, these servants of God, these, that, uh, these disciples, amen, these followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm glad that they said, I'm not going to let a stone cry out on my behalf. He's the king of praise. Can I say this as well tonight? As much as I hate to say this, take your Bibles to Mark chapter number 15. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of creation. He's the king most certainly. He's the king that was desired, was desired. He's the king of praise. But can I remind you of this tonight? He is the king of rejection. Mark chapter number 15. Mark chapter number 15. Look with me at verse number 11. Mark chapter 15 and verse number 11. The Bible said, but the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, what, what will ye then that I should do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? He mentioned it for the first time there in verse number 9. Pilate answering said, or answered them saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? They said they'd rather have Barabbas, verse 11. Pilate tries to get them to reconsider. In verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. The words of verse 13 and 14 strike in my heart like a dagger every time I read the story of the crucifixion of our Lord. As the crowd says, crucify him, it strikes me in my soul. Verse 14, then Pilate said unto them, why, what evil hath he done? Does that not move you in your, in your heart, in your spirit? As Pilate, it seems as if Pilate is doing everything he can to get them to reconsider. Now, I do believe that Pilate should have had a backbone and should have simply just, just not tried to find a way around it, but declared this man is not guilty, therefore he will not be crucified. But that's not what Pilate did. Pilate tried to hide behind politics. He tried to hide behind procedure. He tried to let something else be the, uh, be the scapegoat for his deci decision. He even tries to hide behind pleading. He says, why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them, a murderer, a thief, an insurrectionist, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Here we see Jesus as a king. They called him king of the Jews. But in this moment we find and discover him to be the king of rejection. You look here at what they received. 
they received Barabbas, one that had been accused of crimes, one that was guilty, clearly guilty, and they would rather the guilty go free while the innocent be condemned. Can I tell you tonight as we consider Barabbas, and I don't have this again, another message for another day, but we see a beautiful picture of you and I in the person of Barabbas, one that was clearly guilty, but yet Jesus was the scapegoat. Jesus was the replacement. Jesus was the one that was rejected. Amen. And you and I get to go free. He was condemned while we were condemned in sin. We were guilty in sin. We get to go free and Jesus dies in our place. Here we find this crowd was willing to receive Barabbas, receive a thief, receive an insurrectionist, receive a very bad man and the greatest man to ever live. The only one that was never guilty of one crime or one sin. It was he that they condemned. It was, the, it was he that they said, we are going to scourge him. It was he that that scourging was when uh, the Roman soldiers took him and they beat him beyond the visage of any man. Uh, the prophet said they beat him to the point to be a bloody pulp to the point where you could not tell not only that he was alive, but you couldn't even tell that he was a human being, a mangled piece of flesh tied to a post, and they laid those uh, they laid those stripes upon him. And history tells us they used that wretched cat of nine tails, and they tore the flesh off of his back. And the Bible said they delivered him for that, and then from there to be crucified. All because he was rejected. All because they said, give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. Can I just tell you tonight, I don't know what you came in here bearing in your life. I don't know what kind of burdens you walked into church tonight on your shoulders. But one thing I do know about this world, on the, about this life on this, wor on this world, on this terrestrial ball that we stand upon, can I tell you that mankind knows what it is to feel rejected day after day. Yeah. I have felt rejection. You felt rejection. It's common. And so many times that rejection causes men to lose their mind, causes women to battle great depression, causes humanity to not be able. And they feel like they're losing everything. They feel like their life is out of their control. And a lot of it starts with feelings of being rejected not being wanted, not being cared for. Can I just remind you that while Jesus is the King of the Jews, and He is the King of creation, and He is all these things that I've presented unto you tonight, for those of us, amen, that have felt the bitter sting of rejection, can I remind you that Jesus has too. He knows what you're going through. He, the Bible says that he was tempted in all parts like as we are yet without sin. That we have a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what we go through. He is he in his 33 and a half years on this planet went through the gauntlet of human experience. And he was touched by everything that touches man. And so when you go to God in prayer and you feel feelings of rejection and you feel nobody loves 
loves you and nobody wants you and nobody cares for you, can I remind you that the one that you're praying to and the one when you close your prayer as a child of God and you close your prayer, the one that you'll be praying in, his name, he knows what you're going through. He's a king of rejection and he can help you deal and come to grips, amen, and get healing and help for those feelings of rejection that you feel. If nobody else cares about you, there's a thrice holy God in heaven. There is a son of God in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, that cares for you and has the answers to what you need. Amen. He's a king of rejection. Lastly, I'll give you this and we'll be done tonight. Go with me to Matthew 27 again. In verse number 42, Matthew chapter 27. If you're taking notes, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of creation. And I, by the way, this is not exhaustive. These are just a few that I felt led to give. He was the king most certainly. He's a king that was desired. He's a king of praise. He's the king of rejection. Matthew 27, verse 42, he is the king of Israel. Now, I'm going to make some statements here. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 42. The Bible goes back to our text. In this story, they have him on the cross. They're mocking him. They're wagging their heads at him. They're reviling him. They're mocking him with their words. One of the things that they say in mockery, they said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Do you see what they're asking? They're asking what we talked about just a minute ago in the prayer request. They said, why don't Jesus prove himself to us? If he really is exactly who he said he is, let him come down from the cross and let him prove by coming down from the cross that he is the king of Israel, that everyone claims that he is. They wanted him to just come down from the cross. They wanted him to come down alive to prove that he was the king of Israel. By the way, what they're asking of him is something that most likely had never happened before. I'll tell you this, it did never happen before. Here's how I know. If there was an individual, and I don't know, maybe sometime in history, there was, so there was uh, uh, individuals that they pulled off the cross, I don't know. My studies in history has never revealed that there was, but I cannot tell you for certain. I was not there, I do not know. But I can tell you this, there was never a man that did what they're asking him to do, to remove himself from the cross and come down. That's what would have been so impressive in this moment. That is what would have proved to him that he was who he said he was, that he was the king of Israel, that he was the Messiah, a man that could remove himself from a cross and come down alive and rule them. They would say, man, that is something, and he deserves to be our king. But I don't know the last time you've ever checked about the process of crucifixion. A man cannot put himself on the cross. So how in the world could he remove himself from the cross? 
You laid down on a you laid down on a wooden cross. You might be able to take a nail and a hammer and put you put the nails through this hand to put yourself on the cross. But good luck trying to nail the other hand. <laughs> A man that is nailed in his hands and in his feet on a cross will not be able to pull himself down. And if he did somehow manage to rip the nails out of his hand and rip the nails out of his feet when he made it down to the ground after several being many feet up in the air on those crosses when he made it down, if he made it down alive, his injuries from that action would not allow him to stay alive for very long. Not long enough to rule as the king of Israel. They're asking him to do the impossible. Now I will say this. What we know about Jesus Christ, he, there's nothing impossible with him. And he could have done that and so much more. But can I tell you this evening that as we consider what they are asking Jesus to do to come down from the cross, he, it's not that he could not do that as to why he did not do that. It is, it is because he chose not to do that. I don't believe he was worried about whether or not they thought that he had proven himself as the king of Israel. Amen. If you are exactly what you say you are and you know you're the genuine article, you don't have to prove yourself. Amen. Here they're asking him to come off of the cross alive to prove that he is the king of Israel. And can I tell you that Jesus did come off the cross? Yes, he did. He came off the cross a dead man. Not a man that had swooned, not a man that was uh, out, just simply out of it or unconscious. When he came off of the cross, he was medically dead. Yep. He came off the cross. But he did not come off the cross to their liking. He did not come off alive. He came off dead. But can I tell you that he came, when he came off of the cross, he did not prove to them per their recommendations that he was the king of Israel. But can I submit to you that tonight, because of this passage and others, we know that he was the king of Israel, not because he did what they said and proved himself that way, but he did more than come off of a cross. He came off of the cross a dead man and was put by the hands of men in Joseph of Arimathea's borrowed tomb. Amen. But we, the reason why that we know that he is the king of Israel, it's not because he came off of a cross, but because he came out of a grave. Amen. That's how we know. If he can come out of a grave. <laughs> If he can be clinically and medically dead and choose to take up his own life and walk out of the tomb with victory over death, hell, and the grave, I'm telling you, he did something much more impressive than pull himself off of a cross and rule a little nation of Israel. Amen. He did more than prove he was the king of Israel. He proved he was the son of God. Amen. 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 So if he's the son of God... He has to be the king of Israel. Can I tell you, John chapter number 1, verse number 49, when they asked Nathaniel who Jesus was, he said that he is the king of the Jews, he's the king of Israel, and he's the son of God. Nathaniel knew he was both. We can know he's both. Here we find the mention over and over and over and over again 
that Jesus is a king. They mocked him as the king. The Bible proves definitively in these ways and so many more that Jesus is the king that they mocked him to be. We see the irony. He was a king. But they were mocking him, thinking, oh, he's not really a king, and so we're going to mock him. The irony of his position is that the man they mocked as a king is, in fact, the king. Can I tell you, here we find them striking blows on the Son of God. If they would have known who he was, they'd have kept their hands to themselves, or at least they should have. Can I pause for a moment this evening and ask you this question? Is Jesus still being mocked today? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There's a world that looks at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they look at people like us that say that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they have their, they have their statements of mockery. They have their television shows where they'll mock Him. And you, you think about even in, the, even in the sports world, they have their attire that mocks Him and makes Him into nothing more than a cartoon character. You have it out in the world stage. You see it on the stage, on the stage of entertainment in the world. Everybody that, everybody that wants to is allowed to take a shot at Jesus. Now, don't you dare take a shot at Muhammad. He is the sacred prophet of Islam. You can't even draw a picture of Muhammad or the Muslims want your head. Don't talk bad about Muhammad. Don't talk bad about Allah. Don't talk bad about the Mormons. Don't talk bad about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't talk bad about a cult. Don't talk bad about all of the other religions of the world. But Jesus Christ is fair game in the world we live in. Let's let everybody in the world take a shot at Jesus. Let's let the homosexual crowd take a shot at Jesus and say that he was an effeminate man. And I've heard him even say, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, in the Promise Keepers, you know what they taught? They taught that Jesus had homosexual tendencies. Back in the 90s, they were saying that. Even, let's even let so-called conservative, uh, conservative Christians take a shot at Jesus. I heard a quote recently. I'm, 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 I'm making these last comments and I'm done. I heard somebody in an interview recently Said, said all of the different things that are hot topics in our day, and they claimed that Jesus was all of them, that God was all of them. They said God is a homosexual. They said God is a woman. They said God is a transgender. They, whatever, whatever it is, it's a hot-button topic. They said God is all of those things. They, in those statements that went on and on and on for several minutes, what they were doing was mocking the Son of God. Every time a baby is aborted, men are shaking their fists in the face of God Almighty. Every time a homosexual demands to be accepted by society, the Savior is being spit upon, just like it occurred in this text. Every time evolution is taught in a school to little school children, the Creator is crowned with thorns once again, and a reed is smacking them in His head as we see it in the text. Every time a rebel stirs up conflict in a church, Christ is 
is being stripped and the scarlet robe is being forced upon him. Every time a scriptural sermon is disregarded, it is as if the mock it is as if the crowd is mockily crying, Hail, King of the Jews. And that that mocking cry is echoing through our sanctuaries of America, the world, even in the religious realm. And what we so-called churches are mocking Jesus. They're mocking the Son of God. They're mocking, they're mocking our Savior. Amen. And I'm telling you, it does not excite me. It does not thrill me. But it enrages me with a righteous indignation to live in this nation. Amen. That was founded on biblical principles where generations of yesteryear were taught to read by reading a King James Bible. Amen. They didn't. They did not read. Amen. Uh, just the books that we're being taught to read now. They were taught out of a King James Bible when we had a generation of school children that never knew what it was to go and eat a school lunch in a public uh, school in America. Amen. Without having a teacher lead them in prayer. That's where our nation used to be. And now we all decide we can take a shot at Jesus. And we expect Bible-believing Christians to be to sit down on our laurels and be okay with it. Here we find Jesus is mocked as a king. They're mocking his position. He is the king. Can I just remind this world that we live in, for any that may be watching, for any that may be here that has some kind of contrary opinion to that which this Bible teaches, can I say here in this text we see Jesus being mocked. They're mocking him for his kingship. They're mocking him for his authority. They're mocking him for his rule. And they're saying, oh, you're the king. Let's, let's bow the knee before the king. And they're mocking him. Can I say this? He was the king when they were mocking him. He was the king of creation. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. And if in that moment, Brother Tommy, he would have want, just had a thought to stop their heart, they would have dropped dead. If he would have wanted to do as he did for Israel, as he did for as he did for the sons of uh, as he did for Korah, and let the earth swallow them up, and as one preacher said, take them to hell in a hurry. He could have done that. Have the earth swallow up all of those that was mocking him that day. He could have done it. But he stayed his hand of judgment because he was not there on business yet of judgment and vindication. That day's coming. Jesus was there to seek and to save that which was lost. He knew his purpose for being there, and he did not get out of that place. He let them mock. He let them criticize. He let them deride him. He let them do all of that. This, I, listen to me now. The God of this universe let man that he created spit in his face. The psalmist said he let him pull the beard right out of his face, remove the, the plug the hairs out of his face, beat him with a rod, put a mockery crown of thorns on him, and beat it in his skull because he wanted to save him. Jesus did not re react in that moment. 
But just like, just like the king in that moment did not react. Can I tell you in the day that we're living in right now, Jesus is in a very similar period as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God as this lost and dying world is mocking him and deriding him. He is letting them do it for a time. That's right. Because judgment's coming. He will return. One of these days, he will return riding a white battle stallion. And he's not coming, friend, to die on a cross. He's not coming to save souls in that moment. He's not coming to preach the gospel. He is coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming for retribution. He is, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. He's coming back from vengeance. He's coming back in judgment. We see here, thank God, what Jesus did was for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls, so they should be redeemed. But let's not forget, we live in a world that's mocking Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The irony of his position is ironic because they thought he wasn't what he actually was. And I'm telling you, Jesus today is just as much of a king as he was in that moment. And one of these days, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that that is the truth of God. And I'm that's why we need to witness. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to do more as the church of the living God than we've ever done because He is the King of kings. He is coming back in judgment. And those that we do not reach and those that are not born again will face Him that way if we, don't, if we do not move like we should. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com. <laughs>